0: i'm frederick gertin and i'm the filmmaker
1: and i'm leilani farha and i'm the advocate
0: and this is again pushback talks and leilani we have a new country can you have a guess
1: so how many are we at now
0: one 108 countries, we have listeners of Pushback Talks.
1: It's kind okay. of cool. A new country. Um,
0: I can um, tell you, I mean, the 107, did, did I tell you about that? I'm not sure. It's a former Dutch colony called Sint-Martin in the oh. Car- Caribbean. Yes. Oh, we have several Caribbean nations. We don't have all, so we need more. But this this is actually a country in Central Asia. Or it's almost, sometimes it's regarded f- Europe because of the football uh, so it's like a bit, bit closer oh, to... Oh, no, you'll
1: have to tell me. I don't oh. know. I don't know Central Asia well. I'm yeah, sorry, I don't. It's
0: Kazakhstan.
1: Oh, Kazakhstan. You know what? If I had to guess one, it was going to be but Kazakhstan. But you didn't. You didn't.
0: So there's so did. there zero points for you, no uh, risk taking. This No
1: risk-taking on this day. <laughs> yeah.
0: Nope. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> okay. Today, we're going back to your roots. We We, we talked about that before with your... Family roots, the Mm -hmm. Farah roots from Beirut, from the south of Lebanon, from Palestine. And you're you're both parents are Arab. So you're you're like, this is something you always talk about.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm 100% Arab. There you go. Both of my parents.
0: But Leilani, you know, a Canadian girl called Leilani. I know,
1: with a Hawaiian name and Arab (laughs) parents. They're dreamers. They were dreamers. They are dreamers. Yeah. It's nice.
0: Anyway, you know, the the last time we met physically was in Prague. And then the pandemic closed the festival, this amazing festival we were presenting. The week after I was supposed to go to Beirut, I had a ticket. We're going to show Push in Beirut. Because a lot of people, I mean, I've been invited several times, but a lot of people also told me, you have to come to Beirut and show Push because... The the push thing is happening big time in Beirut. And then I got this invitation. Of course, I said yes. And now, here on our podcast, we have a guest, a very special guest. It's It's a professor of urban studies at the American University in Beirut, the famous university, Mona Fawas. Welcome, Mona, to our Pushback Talks.
2: Thank you for having me. Welcome, Mona.
1: Welcome, Mona. It's so nice to have you. If we can't go to Beirut, we bring Beirut to
0: us.
2: Yeah, and we can't wait to have you in Beirut.
0: No, I mean, you have to tell us why Why do you think PUSH was relevant for, for Beirut?
2: Yeah, well, it, it was indeed very, very relevant. So your friends were absolutely right. Um, so everyone knows Beirut and Lebanon for the civil war, uh, which ended about 1990. And uh, people think that then things kind of worked well, at least for a while. But actually, when you uh, think of that moment of the early 1990 and what uh, the post-war reconstruction meant, it was really like the onslaught of neoliberalism and that big idea that the market was gonna fix everything. We had uh, one of the most gigantic real estate speculation initiatives in privatizing the city's historic core into a private mega project Uh, many investments came people were stripped from their property and uh, you began that kind of uh, frenzy over 20 30 years in which the city gradually was turned from a place that we aspired to have as a place to work in to live in uh, to really become that place where um, banks were uh, trying to uh, attract investors to uh, invest in Uh, buildings were popping up, you would think it was great and people were going to live in them, but vacancy rates became uh, higher and higher. And so we uh, increasingly realized that uh, even like the traditional concepts that people used here, like gentrification, were not explaining things anymore because those apartments were really empty. So like one in four apartments that were built in the post-Civil War era were basically empty. And so when we saw push, we were like, "Yeah, we're not alone in
0: this." Yeah, I mean, this is this this these stories we hear from everywhere. The dark towers. You think that the dark towers is a story from London or from the from the mega cities, but but you also and I, I I've seen dark towers in in Bangkok. You know, I mean, it's so people park their money in apartments, and of course, in the beautiful city like Beirut, it's. It, I mean, the crime is totally. It's, it's it's brutal.
2: It was, it really was, because it basically uh, meant that for many people who had grown up and gone through the civil war and had very strong attachments to the city, they had to pack, they had to leave, because predatory developers were coming, they were purchasing several properties to have these towers. And because there was no national economy, uh, a lot of young people were emigrating, and then the good investment was that real estate. So they would send remittances back, and uh, the central bank, the national policy was about about attracting that money. And uh, that money flew in the real estate because there was no other investment where it could go in. And that gradually meant that those who lived here were pushed out of the city, long commutes, difficult everyday lives, while some of the most beautiful neighborhoods of the city um, lost their heritage, their architectural heritage, but also became emptier and emptier. And these are the kinds of scenes you guys exactly describe in Bush.
0: Mm, yeah and and yeah, I mean Layla, you've been looking into this for many times I know um, this is
1: yeah well one of the things um about Beirut is the way in which it's so clearly and, and through your work Mona I've seen it in your work specifically it's been clearly like a series of laws and policies driving the financialization, it's very clear the government took a position that this was the way to somehow revive the economy. I remember seeing a, a table or chart with all these laws and policies making this possible. So the purposefulness of it is striking to me, but I, I'm interested to know, did it have any, any good flow on effect? Did it benefit the economy? of Beirut or Lebanon in any way?
2: That's a great question, because there definitely, if we think about it as an economic strategy, it was a disaster uh, because an economic strategy is supposed to be measured. The success of an economic strategy should be measured in its long-term sustainability in its ability to redistribute that income on people who can live well in the place. What happened is that uh, the place, the city was hijacked as collateral damage to attract foreign funds and keep this financial financial stability in the country. So to keep the peg of the Lebanese pound in relation to the US dollar relatively stable, the national government, the central bank, were creating tons of incentives for banks to provide subsidized loans. Um, sometimes these in the beginning the subsidized loans seemed reasonable there was a ceiling so it was helping some people who are on rent control purchase their units. but gradually uh, people couldn't afford them anymore because so much incentives were being given to developers to build higher so the property law was changed to allow for foreign investors to purchase property more paying lower taxes then rent rent control was lifted then uh, They introduced new building laws to allow people to go higher. So what we call the rent gap, the difference between what you really have right now, which are these two, three-story buildings that have families who have lived here for several uh, decades, but on old rent control, could now be brought down to be replaced by towers. And that was a huge incentive then for developers to come and build. And then all the loans started unfolding, the housing mortgages. And these were subsidized by the government sometimes In an insane level. So you would have like an $800,000 loan subsidized in a country where minimum wage is $450. So between the period between 2009 and 2014, we know that two thirds of the amounts of the loans, which made up way less. Then a third of the loans were actually going to people who really didn't need them. And the consequence was that you were using the city as a way to attract that capital from abroad, stabilize your currency, but you were losing the city as in its potential role as like a productive space or a place to live in. So stores were closing because they couldn't afford the rent anymore. It wasn't just any more homes. And that is basically how we got to the meltdown in 2019 when uh, people went to the street and you really had a financial breakdown. The system couldn't work anymore.
0: So, the, so the, the, because I, I, the, 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 the movement, uh, the, the protests that were really strong and very creative and very persistent, people, you know, camped in the... There were like open debates in in the in the squares, and it was like a very cool thing happening in Beirut. Very inspirational for for the rest of the world. Um, and uh, what I also understand a, a non-sectoristic uprising in, in which is also very positive for the Middle East. Uh, yeah. So so there was something cooking, but you but you but you see that very much as an uprising against the commodification of housing, against corruption, against all these big forces.
2: That was definitely part of it. It was such a moment of hope. October 2019 was uh, demonstrated to all of us that even if people were not ready to permanently drop the protection of the sectarian warlords, of the people who uh, had sort of used the state and redistributed its welfare as a form of protection to them that they were ready to move uh, people were really on the street we were hundreds of thousands and for like two three months we were organizing teachings and uh, there was a moment of collective learning so those of us who taught at the university were uh, very interested in taking the studies that we had been doing, trying to publish in newspapers, sometimes get a chance to say them on a TV show to really take them to the streets. And we had public debates about that. We all learned so much. That's when we really understood uh, the connections between uh, the different kinds of policies that were happening uh, collectively. And and that was really a moment of uh, of, of hope. I think um the challenge was that that was such a big and spontaneous moment but that it w- we were not organized into a political alternative and that sort of gradually uh, began to show that we had great ideas uh, that we had very good proposals that they had very good resonance with others um and that people were able to understand why uh things that we believed were so inbuilt like the sectarian political system was actually part of why they didn't have housing and not the reason why uh, they would get housing, but uh, we weren't organized enough to take it to the next level.
0: But I have an I have an interesting thought there, Leilani. Or say, I couldn't I couldn't refer to my own thought as interesting, but I have a thought. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but uh, no. But when when a city is hijacked in that way, it's not only the poorest people who are suffering. It's like everybody. It's the whole city. Mona is mentioning. The shops are closing because they can't pay the rents. It's like it's, 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 it's also the, the middle class. It's maybe sometimes also the upper middle class. So, it's, I mean, so, I mean, you're a university professor, so you're probably quite well off in, in the sense of, of being in Lebanon. But, I mean, so it's affecting so many. And that can, of course, in, in a good place, can also unify people. So I I guess that was what's happening. Wasn't that an interesting thought?
1: Super interesting, Frederick. Thanks for sharing that incredibly interesting thought. One of the most interesting thoughts you've come up with. No, really, it it is interesting. I mean, one question as an advocate, and and Mona, I know that you're also an activist, you know, so I think we, and and Frederick is too, although he always says I'm just a filmmaker, but I think we're all activists here. And one thing that preoccupies me is, how do we make change? I mean, I'm constantly thinking, how do we make change? And that idea of critical mass across generations, across sectarian lines or religious lines, across sectors, some people are shopkeepers, some people are academics. I think that 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 critical mass and the breaking down of lines between people is how we will make change. We, that mass mobilization. Um, I'm I, the one thing I wonder um, in our, in a previous podcast, we spoke with a woman, Sarah Chase, who talks about corruption around the world, including in Lebanon. And she says that even when we mobilize en masse, um, and we have another regime, and we're more organized, and we, we have another regime in mind and 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 we manage to topple one regime and another one comes in. She says that even that next regime just ends up replicating corruption. So in a way, I wonder if it matters or not that that you were really well organized or not. Maybe it was it's better that you weren't. I don't know. What do you think, Mona?
2: No, no, I want want the people who made all the mistakes in the last 50 years to be held accountable. You know, our civil war, when it ended in 1990, uh, ended with uh, a scenario in which the people who made the war and their allies basically came to make the peace. And that is the same corrupt group of people who are still running the country. So I think now they've been around for 50 years and it's them sometimes their children that they're trying to groom I think it's time that we begin to form alternatives the the problem with with Lebanon particularly is that it's a very small player in a very difficult uh, global context And um, that means that even when you think about the housing market and the problems that we face at the level of the urban, but even if if you think of the financial bankruptcy, everything is within a global context where big players from the Arab Gulf, Iran, Israel, uh, and then, of course, the United States, everyone has a stake in this. And so you feel that uh, you really need to, Uh, change the local mood so that at least in the way in which we organize ourselves at the level of the urban, there is something different. And my hope is really from there as an activist is that urban politics can make a difference because they can engage people on a new ground that is quite different from uh, just speaking abstractly about corruption. And then you can enact it. So the October 2019 uh, uh, uprising enacted the possibility that Beirut downtown was no more a place of high-end uh, businesses and uh, closed parkings. that those parkings became the communal space and people made soup kitchens, restaurants came and opened and colleagues in psychiatry made psychiatry tents and psychology therapy tents. And this moment in which you created uh, a fabric of an alternative possible, and you actually enacted it, is what gives me hope. So it didn't. Of course, the pandemic came. Um, there was a great opportunity for the government to come and raise the tents and kick us all out and everything. But I think we, for once, performed something that we know we're capable of redoing.
0: And you know, Mona, I think this is this is also a time in history where we, as a community, all the global community, has learned some kind of lessons from uh, 40, 50 years of um, deregulations and believing in the market. And, you know, I was actually in Lebanon in 92 as a young reporter. And it was a city totally, I mean, I was walking down the former green line, which was the separation line in the middle of the city. That was like, it was just rubble. But still there was amazing food there were a lot of nice people i had i had great fun also but i was also joining the the army when the the palestinians were kicked out of the country So it was also a very brutal moment in, in in the history but but then the 90s the 90s was the solution the global solution in the 90s was the market will fix everything i was today in a, in a in a call uh, in a panel with South Africa. And South Africa was also the 90s. You know, it was also uh, Mandela made a deal with the market people. And then the market kind of took over. And, and you know, they opened the door for the market, but they didn't regulate the market. And I think there is now, uh, there's a better understanding now. So I think what you created in, in your movement can still be a, Um, something to remember. But of course, then the 4th of August last year, everything changed again. This big explosion of your city.
2: Yeah, that was really I mean, in some way, many of us see it as like the big explosion of the last 30 years. It wasn't uh, an accident uh, to have allowed Callously for at least seven years, this amount of ammonium nitrate to be placed so near residential neighborhoods just tells you the the level of carelessness, really, that that these individuals um, had towards whoever lived in the city. And I think it's, it's really like it's a war against us. We had a feeling many, I heard many friends say, look, they're waging a war against us. This is what it is. We have to defend ourselves. And you could again see for a few weeks that huge solidarity. So you could see people coming on the street, trying to help move the rubble. And you you begin to see like people's capacity. The, the city's municipality had uh, just finished a supposed resiliency plan that had cost some $2 million. And it took them about a week to figure out that they should just distribute brooms to the activists people were already there, they were helping each other, they were removing rubble, and and that kind of solidarity, that desire to help each other, to organize, I think, again, gave us hope. Um, In the aftermath of the explosion, I think the the amount of devastation that 30 years of financialization had accumulated became more obvious. And that's why uh, my mission has been over the last eight months to try and inscribe the explosion as a simple accelerator of what was happening before then. What is it you're worried about? The demolition of heritage? Let's see how many heritage buildings were destroyed in the years before because a predator developer was trying to remove them. People's displacement? Let's see how many people were displaced. And now we're finding pockets of devastated areas with clusters of old homes that were already abandoned. Predatory developers bought them. But then, you know, as of 2017, it wasn't any more so profitable. Capital was anxious. Remember, the October 2019 uprising also corresponds with the financial meltdown. So the banks start this informal capital control and we default a few months later on our first international payment in the last Year and a half, our currency has lost more than 80 percent of its value. The prices, uh, the the minimum wage that was packed to about 450 dollars is today at around 40 dollars. Uh, Poverty is insane. So you you you're not only facing the port explosion, you're facing a system that has fully sort of melted down. And that's really when you you have to look at it and you can convince people, like, should we reinvent ourselves? Do we really want to try to do what we were doing before? And uh, I mean, what scares me is I see some people really trying to connect back the pieces and do again the same thing. We're seeing some proposals for the reconstruction that make a new uh, intervention like the Beirut downtown. So I feel it's really important that we connect things.
0: Yeah, because this is a, a moment like this when your your currency is going down. That's the perfect moment for the vultures, isn't it, Leilani? That exactly. this is like the, the vulture moment when they can say, "Oh, we can shop cheap here." There's uh, a lot absolutely. of the, so I and mean take advantage and take absolutely. advantage of the crisis. So how I mean, so that's of course something you should find a way to to prevent with your movement and with your work, Leilani.
2: Well,
1: I I I. It's a moment that can go either way or both ways, where the vulture funds are circling and ready to pounce, but where a new version of Beirut and Lebanon is conceived. And the 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 question is who wins? Who's going to win? Whose vision of of the future is going to win? And that's the scary moment because, of course the vulture funds have not just that economic power but they have that political power they have the power of the of the international financial institutions that there they sit at the same tables and the people just have people power and so it's um I mean it's a t- I can imagine it's an incredibly tense moment add to it a pandemic that creates all sorts of barriers to mobilizing and organizing and I mean there it opens up different kinds of organizing and mobilizing but it also shuts down a kind of taking to the streets or that kind of thing I'm I'm interested mona to know what 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 you're seeing on the horizon is it What's looking possible? Mm,
2: yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's a great question. I think there's two scenarios. As you're saying, I'm not sure which direction we will take. And like I said, I, I, I still do believe that there's a lot of uh, global uh, tensions and powers that, uh, that will affect whatever will happen. The, the one thing that makes me very ha- uh, sort of optimistic is that when we saw uh, a foreign uh, intervention last week with the reconstruction of the port that looked like uh, high-end glass buildings and uh, was coming in with this whole idea of being supported by international organizations and foreign powers, um, the people did not resonate the same way they did in the early 1990s. So I remember when we saw the, the first pictures in the early 1990s, those who were not trained as architects, who were not in an environment where they were familiar with what these large-scale interventions do, were in awe. And so it was like, we deserve to have a Beirut downtown like this. This is so great. And I asked yesterday my 40 students in urbanism, hey, you guys, did you see this picture? What do you think? And they were like... This is terrible. We don't need one more of those. And why are they doing this? And who's going to live in there anyway? So all the right questions. And the one that really warmed my heart is this question. Who's going to live in them anyway? I think this is the most important for who are you building them? So I think there's certainly a hope that this will create a a desire and a will to uh, to build differently. To come up with an economic model that's more just than the one we developed in the 1990s anyway the one we developed in the 1990s is just unfeasible anymore capital is not going to flow no one's going to trust a lebanese bank anymore after the ponzi scheme they did so that's kind of great right and you see other positive effects in everyday life in the sense that uh Developers who had bought buildings and wanted to kick out people are now sort of just letting go, waiting a little bit. They're waiting it out. So people are not losing their homes anymore. The rent control that was supposed to be lifted, you had court cases. Now you see the landlord saying, "Eh, why would I send him on the street? I can wait a little bit. Anyway, no one's going to come and rent that unit. So we have a lull. And that lull is an opportunity, shows, demonstrates that it's possible to have a different city and we should work for it. Will this work? It depends on, I think, really very much the capacity that people locally will have to organize and create a unified enough front to be able to create a balance of power. You you don't need to be in government, but you need to change the ethos. And that has changed, I think, on the ground. So now we have to really try to push it further, knowing that poverty is becoming so high, it's going to become difficult to mobilize. So it's it's really it's really uh, a difficult moment. It's hard to predict, to be very optimistic, but there are silver linings. Can
1: I ask, Mona, when you say this vision for the reconstruction, with this, you know, yet again with glass and steel and and whatever, but have Beirutis themselves been engaged in that process of of that visioning, or that's coming from external, like from outside?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that's coming from that's coming from abroad for sure uh, that's uh, that's interventions that are coming from outside that are proposing to rebuild the Beirut port and you know we, we we can't we can't claim that the Lebanese with the current money that they have can build the port so truly you're going to have to need foreign investors, but that's what I keep saying. We need to say what do we want. And then if someone wants to come and it can be a win-win, great. But we need to define first what kind of a city do we want. and it's. I thought sweet. there was
0: like a big French project coming in to build, rebuild the port.
2: There is a French project. There is a German project. Uh, there it was a Chinese project. So there, there, we, it, it, it is interesting. Don't forget the geopolitics of the Middle East will create a lot of interest in the Beirut port and whether uh, it will uh, be able to ha- position itself in the region again or not. So Haifa is growing. Uh, there's questions about the Syrian ports, of course, Turkey. So the Southern Mediterranean geopolitics will play a big role in who will come take over Mm. that's
1: for sure i see it as such an opportunity to build from a human rights based place or human rights values and principles you know if if you could create that as the the necessary foundation from which all reconstruction emerges um, it would be so amazing i mean one of the things that is so clear in the um, lebanon context is the way financialization and any protections for tenants and low income people just completely clashed so you had the the rent control just not being the little rent control that was in it, it gets erased through financialization you see informal settlements starting to rise in 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 and around beirut and with no and don't services. even mention
0: don't even mention the refugees exactly
1: exactly you know so it's just—it's such a moment now where where the the people who are suffering the most, which actually now ends up being a huge percentage of your population. I think you have huge unemployment, fifty percent unemployment or something. So, it's such a moment for for a value based drive um, that that could happen. But uh, it, I don't know if if you see that there's
2: potential there. I mean. There's definitely a shift in the discourse. There's definitely skepticism that the promises that people were made with all this uh, financialization and the flow of gold capital and the la-la land in which uh, we were going to be, there's definitely disillusion in this and more awareness that there's a necessity to create an economy. At the same time, and it's good Frederick mentions the refugees, at the same time, you are in a country that over the last... uh, five, six years, has in, has seen over a million refugee come into the country, and that's about one in four to one in five people in Lebanon today is a refugee. That's huge. I mean, imagine this number in any other country. And think about the potential also that right-wing politicians have in saying it's all the mistake of the refugees, that's why we got poor. And so, um, and so, I mean, of course, we want to say financialization has come to an end. There are silver linings. The real estate has finally come to a bust. We've been saying this for a long time. But we should also be aware that moments of severe rapid impoverishment are also moments where it, that are a fertile ground for right-wing politics. And we're seeing this; these emerge everywhere around the world, in Eastern Europe, in India, everywhere, In the, I mean, including in the region. So I think... I'm afraid to, 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 to think that it's, uh, that it's positive, but I do think that we are equipped and that we've seen so many countries, we're like, what, the 140 country that defaults on its foreign payments and sees its currency devaluate. And so we, we, we are heartened to, to know that we're not the only country that's there and we're really eager and trying to learn what other places have done. Um, so you, you mentioned South Africa, and I think it's it was for me, like when I was, when civil war ended, I was 17, it was 1990. We looked at South Africa as the amazing model where they had a truth and reconciliation committee and they held people accountable and they talked about it. In Lebanon, the civil war was just buried. You don't talk about it. It's the end. So we looked up to them as such an inspiring model. I remember like as uh, going around to schools and talking to school children and saying, we need to have our own tribunal of war. We need to hold them accountable. And then when I finally was invited to Johannesburg in 2017, it was for me, like I had heard, of course, in conferences, many scholars saying it's not enough. You need substantive rights, you need redistribution. But I kept the South Africa dream alive very, very high. So seeing Johannesburg was just like the worst possible um, break sort of rupture of a dream, you know? Oh, my God. And I really think that, yes, we're not alone. And there's an economic system that has ravaged the world. And that's where I think you guys' film is so great in saying, look, it is a system. It's systematic. It's not the Lebanese. It's not the South African. Uh, There is an economic system that needs to be held accountable.
0: Mm. But South Africa has a, a great constitution, and that's actually a tool that can be used for activists. I, I talked about that earlier today. It's, uh, so it's so to to have that's a good fundament, like like also the human rights uh, legislation that Leilani works from. So it so it's so, and I guess the, your movement also asked for a new constitution. Uh, and uh, and as they now are doing when at uprising in Chile, for example, and it's coming through in Chile right now. So it is so. I, it's kind of interesting that a radical movement are asking for a new constitution. It's like it's not waving the red flags and say, kill the rich. It's actually, we want a, a well-founded democracy. We want a constitution that works for, for the interest of the people of the country. Kind of interesting, I think. But Mona, I mean, as a positive note to, to leave this in, the, in, in a while, uh, you are an urban studies professor. You are, have a lot of young people you work with you you have a country that you have a city that needs to be rebuilt there's a lot of energy in in rebuilding there's a lot of economy in rebuilding a city because there i mean so people there's a lot of work to be done so it's in some way it's the best moment for you isn't it you are really placed right where you are needed isn't it isn't that hopeful
2: <laughs> that's hopeful and you know i <laughs> i believe that change comes through an ecosystem and i think that uh, as a university professor I can fulfill a certain role in helping create a discourse, in generating knowledge and uh, data, in making it available to others to take it somewhere else where I can't take it. And definitely that it makes me really hopeful to see that a lot of that idea of an ecosystem is being formed. There are a lot of activist groups today. Just this afternoon, I was uh, listening to a group of uh, small political organizations all coming together and saying, we're gonna run together for the next elections, we're gonna make one front. So you see, they, they, they're developing a program, you know you'll contribute, you, you see yourself as part of something which is uh, much bigger than just you and the university. And, and that is very, very hopeful. Um, uh, Like I said, there's clearly a new discourse in the country. There's clearly a lot of knowledge from the financial meltdown about mistakes we did. How could we have thought this? You hear this all the time. And I think this this definitely ushers hope.
0: Because I I would say, Bono, that many cities around the world that have seen the same kind of hijacking of their city would almost like they would wish for an explosion which is a little bit cynical seeing it from your perspective. But Not i mean, sure but I, 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 No, 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 I know, I know. But, but when you're like uh, really angry and you see all these people be, be being kicked out, you say, okay, let it just go away. I hear
2: and you, I hear you. It actually
0: happened. It actually happened in Beirut. It went, it went out. Uh, so, I mean, that sense that there is a, a point zero where you can start to rebuild.
1: One thing that I like that you said, Mona, is about and and Frederick as well about young people and the role young people have to play. And sometimes when I say that, I think people are think, oh, she's being like, oh, the future is in young people, like this sort of sappy kind of ex, ex you know um, idea. But it's it's different. And a young person articulated it back to me in a, a lecture I was giving a little while ago, where they said that this young fellow said that he thought young people are the right people to make change because they aren't already part of the system. They aren't part of the system that you talked about in the Frederick talks about in in the film push this financialization they haven't been sucked in yet and so they still have that ability to see the world differently they're not they they don't a lot of them don't benefit from the power structures Um, and I think there's something really nice about that if we can tap into the fact that they still exist outside of the system um, maybe there is a lot of hope in what young people can bring bring to the struggles.
2: Yeah, I mean, it certainly is hopeful uh, to be be surrounded uh, by young people. And that's one of the great advantages of being in the university and and to see them challenge things that you think uh, don't work. um, And and to say, no, we're going to try. In Lebanon, the the imagined economic strategy for a very long time was to just send them off and have them send back remittances to the country. And you're now hearing um, many people packing up, of course, if they can, and saying, I'm leaving, I can't handle this. It's awful. But you're also seeing many people saying, we're not going to accept this. We're going to make a difference. So I'm I'm really uh, hopeful in them being able to create new opportunities where uh, maybe it was harder for for older generations to do, yeah, definitely. Mm.
0: And Mona, I know you bought me a ticket to come to Beirut. Leilani couldn't, but I was on my way. So do you think we can open up that ticket again soon? So- as
2: soon as the COVID uh, calms down a little bit here, we would love to have you both, and maybe we can do a film about this whole area where the explosion happened.
0: Yeah, it, it would be nice to have a screening in Beirut and, and to 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 talk about these issues because and I think there's also a lot for us to learn. So and we, we want to learn more. It's, it's, it's really interesting.
2: It would be uh, lovely to, to have you here and treat you to good Lebanese food and Lebanese wine. Exactly.
0: Oh, <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, my memories from when I was in Beirut, the, the food is it's so good. And the people are nice. It's, it's a lovely, lovely place to people to. People are to.
2: warm. Yeah. People are warm. Yeah. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I want to come to Beirut. Me
1: too. Me too. When I was in uh, when I was in Palestine in uh, well, both in nineteen ninety four, but uh, later in two thousand and two. Um, I remember so distinctly eating this incredible falafel. And of course, all the Palestinians were saying, yeah, it's the best falafel because it's Beirut."
2: It, the, the person is from Beirut originally.
1: <laughs>
2: That's so funny. My husband would kill you. He's Palestinian. And every time he eats falafel in Beirut, he says they suck. They're much better in Ramallah. So
0: uh, you come to Malmo, <laughs> Malmo is the, the falafel city of, of the north. So it's like uh... We, it's a it's a very huge Arab population in Malmo, so oh. there is the, the the big newspaper has a a falafel guide every year, the, the competition <laughs> yeah. of the best falafel. Anyway, Mona, it's been a pleasure to have you on Pushback Talks, and uh, Leilani, uh, it's also a pleasure to co-host. Now I'm you see I'm about to hug you, but I mean you're an Ottawan I mean, and Malmo, it's a bit impossible. But I was that was my like it. I take the, the, the virtual inten- hug. The intention like came like hug. this spontaneously. I just wanted to hug you <laughs> and say, it's, it's nice to do the pushback talks together, isn't it?
1: It, it is nice. And it's a, it's a lovely way to connect. And I am very happy to have connected with you, Mona, mm. as well, to learn a bit more about Beirut and, and
0: uh, the future, you know.
2: it's really nice talking to you guys. Thank you for having me, really. Thank
0: you. And thank you, Leilani. Let's hope we can get at least 110 countries before the next week. Isn't that a challenge?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and more than one listener in each country. That would be good too.
0: Yeah, but that means <laughs> that you the listeners need to tell your friends to that the, that the, the the very existence of pushback talks. So That's you right. should Every listener should bring in at least 5 friends there every we week. <laughs> uh, oh, and wow. then so, yeah. Yeah, i mean what else
1: is there to do in the pandemic but listen to podcasts
0: right? right you go you go on a walk you can go on a bike ride you listen to podcasts to right. a one podcast push back pushback talks. talks and how do we run how do we finance this podcast push cast the podcast. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we don't finance it because we have no resources we do rely on the generosity of our patrons. Of whom we have, how many, how many patrons now, Frederick, do you know?
0: No, but we have, no. we have a, a nice group of patrons, and, mm-hmm. and, and they are, some are supporting us with a value of one glass of wine to me and to you, and some are with almost with a bottle of wine. So it's like, you can, you can level it, but everybody is welcome and, and please join and support uh, our podcast because then we feel happier and you want us to be happy, don't you, you people out there? No, I would I'm sure like to. No, I would like to hear everybody shout, "Yeah, yeah, yeah!" yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not yet. Leilani, have a nice uh, day over there in Canada. I will. I will. I will go out. It's a little bit rainy, but we think springtime is now coming. It's it's time for spring.
1: So. It is time for spring. Yeah. Thanks, Frederick. Thanks, Mona. Thank you. Thank Goodbye. You. Bye.
2: Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To watch Push, visit pushthefilm.com. You can also support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next week.